0: For the love of home.
1: December 31st, 1999. Jana was a teenager. I was a senior in college. For many Russians, the 90s had been a disorienting, tumultuous decade. But for Americans my age, progress seemed preordained. More freedom...
2: This agreement is one more reminder that former adversaries can come together to find common ground. More internet.
0: Internet is uh, that massive computer network, the one that's becoming really big now.
1: Gas was around a dollar a gallon. The scariest thing out there was Y2K.
2: Almost everyone is preparing for the worst. Potential Y2K computer
0: crashes top the list.
1: So I barely registered the report about Boris Yeltsin's announcement. In his annual New Year's Eve address, it was the kind of thing that showed up on the news in the background a slurring, droopy, sad looking Russian president. Russians, a, a far cry from the heroic figure who helped bring down the Soviet Union.
0: Today, I, for the last time,
1: The man who presided over Russia's wild 90s and its messy transition to capitalism was asking for forgiveness. And he was calling it quits. At the end of the speech, a bombshell. Yeltsin announced his successor, a gray KGB man in an ill fitting suit дорогие друзья сегодня в новогоднюю ночь
0: when I heard the news I almost knew nothing about Putin.
1: я как и вы с родными и друзьями,
0: Putin was not a popular politician. Putin was not a recognized politician. We knew nothing about his political views or his political agenda. Nobody could, could say what he would do. So he was, as my father put it, a cat in a sack. —
1: From Crooked Media, I'm Ben Rhodes.
0: I'm Zhana Nemtsova.
1: And this is another Russia, episode three A Cat in a Sack. On the last episode, Boris Nemtsov went to Moscow to take on the oligarchs. It was a fight between two visions of Russia one, democratic, with rules that applied to everyone, the other believed that money and power trumped everything else. And the oligarchs won. Nemsov resigned. But they were still left with Yeltsin, who was increasingly drunk and dysfunctional. So they needed to find a new frontman for Yeltsin to appoint in his place, the next president of Russia.
2: The oligarchs who were very much still in control were not going to let electorate decide free and fair elections. That's Arkady Ostrovsky. He's the Moscow correspondent at The Economist. They needed to ensure that whoever comes to power would guarantee their position, their capitals. And they started looking for a successor.
1: The oligarchs knew that whoever was chosen would eventually have to win an election. That meant they needed to find out what kind of leader would appeal to ordinary Russians. A magazine owned by a top dog oligarch commissioned a poll. Who do you most admire? it asked. First place
2: was Russia's World War II commander. And the other was a character called Stirlitz, the character in in the most popular Soviet television series of the 1970s.
1: This guy Stirlitz was a fictional Soviet spy who infiltrated the Nazi high command. He was basically the Russian version
2: of James Bond. And one of the magazines put him on the cover and said, Stirlitz, President 2000. That's right. The magazine was
1: suggesting that any future president of Russia had to be someone like Stirlitz. What this said to the oligarchs is that Russians wanted a hard man, someone who could protect them. No more of the embarrassment of Yeltsin, the humiliation of the post Soviet years. They wanted someone like Stirlitz, who had protected
2: Russia from the Nazis. They started looking for a candidate who would fit the profile of who people wanted. So they needed one of those kind of uniform guys, but they needed that guy to be completely controllable. And in a way, Putin, being from the KGB, being a spy, fitted that profile.
1: Now, this isn't a podcast about Putin, but we can't tell the story of what happened to Russia and to Boris Nemtsov without the man who became the arch villain. Vladimir Putin was a KGB man, through and through. He had been a spy in East Germany in the 80s. He survived the post Soviet years by getting into the corrupt politics of his hometown, St. Petersburg. He was grim, workmanlike, and maintained his KGB connections. By the late 90s, he had risen to the top of Russia's security services. The oligarchs thought this is their guy, a guy without too much charisma, who could perhaps be molded. So
2: they sold the idea of Putin to Yeltsin.
1: Yeltsin was mainly worried about his own skin. He knew that whoever came next could investigate his family's corruption. Putin was known to be loyal to his former bosses, and he was willing to privately promise the Yeltsin family immunity from prosecution. So the oligarchs were happy, and Yeltsin was satisfied. They even came up with a name for their plan. Operation Successor. A bit obvious, I know. And to turn Putin from a faceless bureaucrat into a president, they used their most powerful tool.
2: Television. Having seen the power which television wielded in the 96 elections, having seen the power it wielded in 97, when they destroyed the government of of Nemtsov, they decided that it was so powerful that they could actually pick up somebody who was pretty much unknown to Russian public and make him president. So they basically turned Putin, by means of television, who Putin who most people would never even recognize, into a television star.
1: Putin's star turn came in 1999. By then, Yeltsin had appointed him as prime minister, a good stepping stone to the presidency. But there's still one problem. No one really knew who Putin was. And then, on August 31st, a massive explosion goes off at a shopping mall in the center of Moscow.
0: 41 people were hurt
1: yesterday when a bomb exploded in an underground mall in Moscow. Ten days later, another bomb explodes in an apartment building. This time, over 100 people are killed.
2: Another bomb has ripped through an apartment block in Russia.
1: All of a sudden, people in Moscow are terrified. Who are the bombers? And when will they strike next?
2: All of the explosions happened during the night, apparently to inflict the maximum number of casualties.
1: Rumors spread that these bombings were being carried out by Chechen terrorists. We wanted to make Chechnya into an independent state. It's an attempt by international terrorists to frighten the people, stir up panic, paralyze the political leadership of the country. Putin was asked about these terrorists by a journalist. He appeared frazzled, his eyes darting wildly around the room. And then he
2: said... We will wipe out this Chechens in a shithole. And he spoke a different language. You know, this was not the language of of a sort of office politician. This was a language of a kind of a a street guy, guy next door people could relate to. He spoke in the language which a lot of people understood. We'll wipe them out in a shithole.
1: This was the hard man the oligarchs had been looking for.
2: And that was the moment when the public attention clicked. And suddenly, Putin's ratings started growing.
1: The oligarchs filled their television stations with images of Putin. He was a bit like Tom Cruise's character in Top Gun. Don't think, just do.
2: Putin was the man of action. He was different from Yeltsin. He was anointed by Yeltsin, but he was different. He was young, he was sober, he was a man of action. He was the Bond Putin was
1: presented as a solution to the chaos of the 90s for so many Russians that had been a scary and disorienting time.
0: So, our society was disillusioned with the liberal course. They did not want reformers to rule the country anymore, so their prevailing mood was reactionary. Mm. So, they probably were nostalgic about the Soviet Union. They wanted order. They wanted the rule of law.
1: And so on New Year's Eve, 1999, Russians watched as Boris Yeltsin announced Vladimir Putin as his successor. Another Russia is brought to you by The Daily Show, Years Edition podcast. Did you know The Daily Show is also available as a podcast called The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition? This is really exciting news, guys. I have to admit, I love The Daily Show. I love Trevor Noah. I watch the extended interviews on on YouTube whenever I can, and I do listen to this podcast. And on the podcast, you can listen to full episodes, revisit your favorite interviews, and hear exclusive bonus content like extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. In every episode, Trevor Noah and The Daily Show correspondents, Ronnie Chang, Michael Costa, Desi Lydic, Dulce Sloan, Roy Wood Jr., all of them. They bring insightful humor to the day's top headlines, providing coverage of and catharsis from daily events through a sharp, incisive lens. Really, this is some of the smartest and funniest commentary out there. You guys should check this out. If you like The Daily Show, you'll get even more on this podcast. Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Take The Daily Show with you wherever you go with The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After that speech on New Year's Eve, Yeltsin retired. Putin served as acting president for a couple of months before easily winning the election in March of 2000. So now the oligarchs had their men in power, but they quickly learned that they'd made the wrong bet. One of the first things Putin did was call a closed-door meeting with the very oligarchs who helped anoint him. This meeting has since become famous, in part because no one knows exactly what was said. There were no journalists, no notes taken. One thing is clear. Putin wanted to show who was boss, and he issued something of an ultimatum. Do as I say, stay out of my way, and you can keep your mansions and yachts and billion-dollar companies. Go against me, and you'll suffer the consequences. As with Nemtsov and the oligarchs, television would be the battleground. And it was around this time, as Boris Nemtsov was serving in parliament, that he noticed something about Putin when he went to visit him in his office.
2: Putin took Yeltsin's office, where Nemtsov had been many, many times. And Nemtsov said, he looked at the desk. Putin said, nothing changed in that, apart from one thing. Yeltsin always had a pen on his desk. And the pen, which he gave to Putin, was gone. And instead of the pen, there was a remote control for television. And that television control, television remote control, was the new instrument, of sort of a new weapon through which Putin came and conducted power. Putin would
1: sit at that desk for hours, watching television news. He understood the power of propaganda— And he was obsessed with what people said about him. But then something happened that didn't play out on television the way that Putin wanted. So tell me about the Kursk submarine disaster. What happened? What do you remember about it?
0: It happened uh, in August 2000.
2: A race is underway to rescue a Russian nuclear-powered submarine with more than 100 men on board that stranded on the bottom of the sea inside the Arctic Circle.
0: I learned about it from the news. It is becoming
2: increasingly clear that the crew of the Kursk were doomed from the moment huge explosions ripped through the Russian nuclear submarine during naval exercises nine days ago.
0: So it was a total disaster. The Kursk submarine sank, and they were a number of explosions, and a lot of crew members died immediately.
1: But there was this one group of crew members who did manage to escape. They went into the back of the submarine, and they waited for a rescue that never came. This was a disaster that played out 24-7 on Russian television. People watched the tragedy in real time, and Putin did not look good.
0: And then he went to meet the widows of the crew members of the submarine. He was wearing all black, but he showed almost no empathy. He wanted to get out of this room so badly, and (laughs) you could understand that. Yeah. So he was not used, and he is not used to talking to people to express any human feelings.
1: Have you ever seen him show empathy for anybody?
0: I have never seen. No. I, actually, I have never seen his real emotions except for one, his anger, his rage.
1: And the fact that Putin struggled to show emotion was pounced on by the TV stations he loved to watch. They went after him, especially this one network called NTV, owned by the oligarch Vladimir Gusinsky. Remember Gusinsky, the former theater director? who helped destroy Boris Nemtsov with the very same television station? That's the guy. NTV started going after Putin in ways that seem unimaginable today. Every night, attacking him, making fun of him. One sketch on a popular satirical show showed a puppet Yeltsin rocking a hideous baby with Putin's face. Oh, sure. Wow. And Yeltsin is asking himself, How did I give birth to this creature? In reply, the hideous puppet baby starts to yell the phrase that made Putin famous Wipe them out in the shithole! Wipe them out in the shithole!
2: Putin saw this as a subversion. He saw it as a a betrayal by television channels. He saw that television still had independence of him and that there was opposition. There was still opposition in the country. Maybe the oligarchs had not listened to Putin at that meeting.
1: So he decided to act. He tells Kaczynski, essentially, I've had enough of this. I'm going to take over your television channel.
2: It happened one night in in April 2001. At the NTV studios, Putin's goons, the security services,
1: stormed the building in the middle of a live broadcast. They told the journalists, this channel has now been taken over and you need to leave.
2: But the journalists refused. For as long as journalists were in the studios... As long as they were in front of the cameras, they could continue to do their job. They kept delivering the news
1: for hours and hours. Journalists facing off with a bunch of security guys.
2: The journalists understood what was going on, that this is a authoritarian, you know, this is a takeover.
0: Many people gathered here outside of Astan TV center, to support NTV. People do care about the future of
1: uh, Russian independent media. This is, you
2: know, attack on on the freedom of speech.
1: Still, we are going to fight. But eventually, the security forces win the battle.
2: And physically force the journalists out, turn them off air.
1: This was a turning point for Russia. Putin had taken over a TV channel with brute force, and it was just the beginning of his crackdown on
2: media. Looking back at the event, you can see that Putin had a very systemic approach to power. He recognized that to have power, he needed to control people's minds.
1: And he couldn't control people's minds without controlling the television.
2: Television mattered more than anything
1: else. The takeover of NTV was a signal to the rest of the oligarchs that Putin meant business. A warning sign. I'm not beholden to you. You're beholden to me now. And most Russians loved it. After all, they hated the oligarchs. They blamed them for what happened in the 90s. And after the turmoil of the past, they were just concentrated on living. And for the first time in a while, they were starting to live well under Putin.
0: Well, when Putin came to power... There was a major improvement in oil prices. The
1: Russian economy is very dependent on oil. And the higher the oil prices, the richer the country becomes. And in the early 2000s, that's what happened. Global oil prices rose. Russia's economy got stronger and stronger. And the lives of the Russian people got better. So they didn't have to worry about politics.
0: So Putin is a lucky guy. There was like a sort of an agreement between the ruling class and other people. So you can make money, you can do your business, you can open credit lines, you can get cheap mortgages, things like that, but you do not have to, to be engaged into, po- into politics in any way.
1: Maybe it was too much politics that caused all that chaos in the first place.
0: We don't want any political fight. We want stability. And that's what Putin wanted Russians to believe. So stability, stability, stability. And he kept on contrasting his years with Yeltsin's with years.
1: Were, were you in Moscow in those years?
0: Yes, I was in Moscow. Moscow was changing at the time. You could see a lot of new... Places opening up, cafes, restaurants, cinemas.
1: This is around the time IKEA came to Russia. Now, IKEA was a symbol for many Russians. Its arrival told them they could finally start to live the middle-class dream they'd been promised for so long, just like in the West. And to bring things full circle, IKEA is one of many Western companies that pulled out of Russia this year after the invasion of Ukraine.
0: After after this very difficult transformational period in the 90s, life became more pleasant.
1: So where was Boris Nemtsov in all this?
0: My father described this period is like that, life has become better but more disgusting.
1: <laughs> what do you think he meant by that?
0: I assume that he meant, first of all, that Putin, one of his uh, first decisions was to return the Soviet anthem. He did it in 2000. It was a signal. It suggested a lot about his uh, political style. He was probably nostalgic about the USSR, and his secret dream was to restore the glorious Soviet Union, something like that.
1: In 2003, Nemtsov's liberal opposition party got crushed in the parliamentary elections. With oil prices sky high, no one had much of an appetite for criticism of Putin, not even the Moscow liberal elite. So, your father loses in 2003. What does he decide to do next?
0: He decided it was probably the best time for him to earn money.
1: Nemtsov decided to do what the rest of the country was trying to do make money, go into business. But there was a problem.
0: He was not good at business, and he admitted many times I'm a bad businessman. I don't understand the thing in business. I don't know how to deal with that.
1: A friend of his, A guy called Mikhail Friedman, who was in charge of one of Russia's biggest banks, told Nemtsov.
0: I will never hire you, Boris. (laughs) No way. I know you really well. You will not be able to stay away from politics. You're a natural politician. Mm -hmm. You will never be silent. You will speak your mind. I'm sorry. It will ruin my business. No, we can meet with you. We, We can have dinners with you, we can go on holidays with you, but we will never work together.
1: And so Nemtsov got back into politics, but this time outside of parliament. He wrote a book, Confessions of a Rebel. He started campaigning against government corruption and for freedom of speech. The 2000s were a strange time to be in opposition in Russia, what little there was. The economy was still growing, and Putin tolerated the illusion of democracy, so he let them keep it up, within reason. But it would turn out to be a facade. Because meanwhile, Putin was taking over the media, putting his friends in charge of the big companies, and making sure that pretty much everything in Russia was under the Kremlin's control. The truth is, most Russians weren't paying close attention. They were just going about their business. So was Jana. Her life changed a lot during Putin's first two terms as president. She finished school, she got married, and then, in 2010, it all came crashing down.
0: I divorced my husband. We decided to divorce, and I lost my job, and I lost my apartment. I just lost everything (laughs) in one day. I just didn't know what to do. My father was absolutely furious. He did not want me to divorce. He regarded it as a big disaster, as <laughs> <laughs> is my, is my greatest failure.
1: And so we get to New Year's Eve, 2010, 10 years after Putin was announced as president. Jana was feeling low and a bit lonely. She was on her own.
0: And then I called my father and I said, Dad? What are your plans for this day? And probably we could celebrate New Year together. And he said, of course, you can come to my place. But first, let's go to the protest.
1: These protests were not unusual. In fact, they were held almost every month in Moscow. And always about the same thing. The right to protest itself. This was not a big movement. Most of the people there had been protesting for years. It was the kind of crowd who always turns up for a protest. In the U.S., they'd be the people with homemade signs and gray ponytails. People thought they were safe. And so Boris asked Jana to come with him.
0: Let's, let's spend like 40 minutes there, and then we'll go to my place. We'll celebrate together. Great idea. Just come.
1: Jana actually hadn't been to a protest before. Politics and protesting really wasn't her thing. But her father was her father. And he was very persuasive. And so she went.
0: It was already dark. It was snowing. It was in the center of Moscow. The name of the square was Triumfalne Square, the square of triumph.
1: There weren't even many people there, maybe 200.
0: Most of them uh, were old people. People of, I would say, all the generation, very, very peaceful.
1: But what she did notice
0: was a lot of police. There were so many policemen everywhere. So many policemen, special police tracks. It looked weird. Okay, why? So many policemen. So I can't figure it out. So they were at this protest, and there were all these police there.
1: And her father made his way to the center of the crowd.
0: And then my father made a speech. It was very emotional. He used very strong terms. It was something about Putin. I think that specifically he said, like, we are not afraid of you. We have the right to peacefully gather, and we will do everything we can to protect that right.
1: What do you think watching that? Did you, are you proud of him, are you worried, or you just is it normal well, you see your dad? Do I,
0: I was I was I was taken aback by his speech because I hadn't listened to my father speaking at such protests, <laughs> <laughs> and he was he was like on stage he was like a different person. So in a private conversation he was not that emotional. Mm -hmm. And wow, I hadn't seen him like that before. He spoke for around a couple of minutes with others, and we were about to go out from the crowd and to take a car to drive to his apartment. It it happened like in five seconds he was surrounded by special police forces, 20, 30, 40 people. They had uniforms, they had helmets, they had weapons. They detained him, I was frightened, and my first thought was, I don't want to be arrested. And that's why, together with my friend, we went behind a kiosk just to hide. And then we started to run. And we ran for five minutes, and then I called my father. He was in the police car. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, what has just happened? My father said, well, I got arrested, and I think I will spend a new year in a prison cell.
1: That cold New Year's Eve in Moscow, at a place called the Square of Triumph, Boris Nemtsov's life changed forever, and so did Janice. It was also the beginning of a new and much darker period for the country that they called home. That's next time on Another Russian. Another Russia is an original podcast from Crooked Media. It is produced by Samizdat Audio. I'm Ben Rhodes, your co host, writer, and executive producer.
0: And I'm Zhanna Nemtsova, your co host and executive producer.
1: From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and Katie Long, with special thanks to Alison Falzette. From Samizdat, our executive producers are Dasha Lisitsina and Joe Sykes. Asya Fuchs is our producer. All three also help with writing on the series. Fact-checking by Amy Tardif, archival by Molly Schwartz, the series of sound design by Jeff Entman, and Martin Orstwick composed our theme music and score.
0: If you want to learn more about the stories of Russians who are standing up to autocracy and how you can help support their work, check out nemsoffund.org slash Russians for Change. We will also put a link in our show notes.